Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. So yes, love your enemies. What a time. Um, I'm actually uh, thinking first more of a a previous book that I wrote, uh, which was called A Heart as Wide as the World. And um, in writing that book, uh, the publisher had a different title in mind for quite a long time. And it was only when I heard a colleague of mine give a talk when I was sitting there, and she used the term a heart as wide as the world, that I thought, oh, that's it. I didn't really much care for the previous title, but I, I couldn't think of what might replace them. So, replace it. So then I called the publisher, who was not that happy to hear from me, and I said, I want this title instead. And we were some ways into the process, so... They had already designed a cover, and um, so there was, they were really gracious enough to, to accede to my wishes, and there was then a mad scramble to get a new cover. And certainly, you think a heart as wide as the world, you think of, like, expansiveness, like openness, right? So they started, this was quite a long time ago, and um, they started just mailing me these various options and you know one of them I remember was like a copy of a Van Gogh print I don't remember the painting and it was like this big yellow sky and a few like crumbled huts down in the bottom of the picture and it was like the most desolate depressing scene I thought first of all who's happy to see like a big yellow sky and then I I said to somebody it looks like it could be the cover of the Grapes of Wrath or something. Like, those huts were, like, falling apart. And, um, But I wasn't really confident in my own vision, so I showed it to a bunch of friends. And I'll never forget, I showed it to one friend, and she just took a look at it, and she said, that looks like a world that could use some love. And that phrase has really stayed with me and been coming up a tremendous amount in these days. This looks like a world that could use some love. And one of my own personal desires and commitments is to have love be part of the conversation when it could be so easily left out in, you know, times of great adversity and, you know, for many people, a lot of fear and uh, contentiousness and division. And uh, we can easily overlook the, the concept of love, the power of love, uh, it can be so easily confused with giving in and um, being obsequious and not standing up for anything. And and so I also think it's a tremendous time to take a look, like, what do we really think makes us strong? And what's our experience about what drags us down or makes us weak and so on? So, and so this is the day devoted to the exploration of love, although perhaps... Uh, commonly in a rather limited way, you know, here we are. It is very interesting. I tweeted today um, a quote from my goddaughter, who at the time she said it was seven years old, 
or so. She was something like seven. And um, it was the year uh, she and her mother and younger sister were visiting London, and it was the year of the London Metro bombing. And uh, they live here ordinarily very close to the World Trade Center. So this was the second time in her really young life that she'd heard about or, or even witnessed a you know, terrible attack. And I knew they were fine physically, uh, but I wrote to her mother and I said, well, how is she? And, and her mom wrote back and said, you know, she told her what had happened. And the first thing, Willa is my goddaughter's name, uh, the first thing Willa said was, let's pray. So they sat down together and then Willa said, I want to go first. And her mom said, okay. And then what Willa's prayer was, was may all the bad people find the love in their hearts. And I was so moved and astonished by that. I thought, first of all, in contrast to me and most of the people I knew who were like, are the subways safe? You know, what about me? You know, and uh, to, to have that recognition, you know, this is a wrongful act. This is, um, this should not happen. And why does it happen? Because people can't find the love in their hearts. And, and to think of that as the remedy, I thought, okay, there it is right there. So that was my, my tweet of the day. Um, and then I added, you know, may we all find the love in our hearts uh, in doing that. So love your enemies. Um, that was a book that I, I co-wrote with Bob, as was just said. And um, that was also a title I was, I was not completely enthusiastic about, although I had no say in the end uh, about it. It was, I kept being concerned that it was like a step too far. You know, like people would feel perhaps they were being lectured to or it was too idealistic and uh, really fed into our fear about being conflict avoidant and denying our pain and suffering just to um, bow down to the needs of, of others. And so uh, I was concerned, but... It, that was the title, nonetheless. And interestingly enough, most of the pushback came not from that, but from the word enemies, which people felt were, many people felt was too rigid a term and too dismissive a term and, and in itself was divisive. But it is actually the common term that's used in uh, translations in, in Buddha, from Buddhist texts, which um, we tend to say difficult people, but if you were practicing in Burma, for example, they'd say enemy. Do you have an enemy? And some people, you know, felt at the time this book came out in their personal lives, yes, there were people who had tried to harm them or they were afraid would harm someone else. And it was a very real and realistic fear. It wasn't just made up by any means. And um, But there were a lot of people who, who felt... Not so much. And interestingly enough, of course, we live in a time that just a few years later is very different. And many, many, many people say, yeah, I have enmity. You know, I have a tremendous sense of separation and, and dislike and fear towards somebody. So 
the model of the book, I think, is an interesting model to look at. And it's based on this Tibetan system, so it came from Bob, where um, often in describing something in, in the Buddhist psychology, in the, especially in the Tibetan system, they have these four categories, the outer, the inner, the secret, and the most secret. So the outer enemy is that figure, somebody who has hurt us, somebody who may well hurt us, or somebody we fear will hurt us, who's harmful, whose behavior um, is detrimental to us or, or to others. And then there is the inner enemy. It's those forces which come up, and if they take over, they cause us tremendous suffering, and they cause suffering to others as well. So forces like grasping, greed, hatred, fear itself, jealousy. Now, the idea isn't that you should feel bad about feeling these things. We feel what we feel. And there's a, a real integrity in being able to acknowledge this is what I'm feeling. This is more a question of what about when these forces take over, when they dominate our lives to such an extent that they define our choices, that our worldview gets... Uh, constructed by the characteristics of those forces. So one of the characteristics of those states, again, not when we just feel them, but when they're really dominant, is kind of tunnel vision, right? If you think about the last time you were really, really afraid, for example, it's not likely a time where you were thinking, you know what, if it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way. It's like, it's not going to work. Or think about the last time you were really angry at yourself, however long ago that might have been. It's probably not a time where you were thinking, well, I did five great things the same morning. I said that really stupid thing. It's like those five great things, they're gone. They've just evaporated. I sometimes tell the story about... Um, from the olden days of email, which is such a funny thing to say, but it was like the olden days of email, and I was home in Barry um, working on something on my desktop computer, and I heard that sound, like you've got mail, and I got so excited. Remember when you used to get really excited? <laughs> like, <laughs> and it was that sound, like, wow, I have email. Somebody sent me an email. So I got online, and there was somebody writing to me saying, I don't understand the problem with anger. So I wrote back, and I said, well, you know, it's not, again, it's not a problem with feeling anger. It could be a problem when anger is overwhelming, when it just completely distorts our, our perception. Um, and I said, the problem with getting lost in anger is that we tend to put people in a box. And then I got offline. And uh, I went back to my project, and something went really terribly wrong in the relationship between my computer and my printer, and I got really angry. And I got down on my hands and knees, and I was pulling out plugs and putting in other plugs. And first person I was angry at was, we didn't even have the phrase IT in those days. It was somebody we called our computer assistant. I was furious. He was in Hawaii on vacation. Um, <laughs> 
All I could think was, you are never here when I need you. How dare you be in Hawaii on vacation? It's like totally forgetting that the reason he was on vacation was that I had decided he needed a vacation. And the reason he was in Hawaii was that I had gone to the airport and used my frequent flyer miles to get him a ticket. It was gone. He betrayed me. He's not here. He's never here. And the next person I was really angry at was myself. It was like, you are so clumsy. You're such an adult. You can't fix anything. Why can't you fix this thing? Why didn't you learn anything about it? You know? And meantime, I fixed it. You know? But I didn't even take a moment to like breathe and be grateful. Like, wow, I fixed it. I just got back up on my chair grumbling and went back to work on the project. And then I heard that sound again, that magical sound. And I went back to email, and it was my original correspondent saying, I don't understand what you mean when you say that when we get lost in anger, we just put people in a box. So I wrote to him, and I said, well, this is what just happened. You know, I put this guy in a box. I put myself in a box. It's not that that state is bad or wrong or doesn't sometimes give us great information, because it can, but its very nature is like constricting. It's like we're in this vise. We don't see many options. Creativity tends to die right there. They also say uh, in the Buddhist psychology that anger is like a forest fire which burns up its own support. It can devastate us as the host, right? So one of the goals is, first of all, to understand the nature of what we're feeling, not like after we've sent the email, not after we've lashed out at somebody, but as a feeling is starting to come. And then decide, you know, do I want to nurture this? Do I want to let it go? Is there somewhere in between, actually, where, where I want to hang out with it and yet not let it make my decisions for me quite yet? You know, maybe you write that email and you don't press send right away. You hang out with it a bit. Or um, when I was working on this book, uh, Real Happiness at Work, somebody suggested to me, Send the email to yourself first so you get to experience it as the recipient. How does that feel? Then decide if you're going to send it on. There are lots of options when we're not completely consumed by one of those feelings. So all of those difficult feelings um, or problematic states are a problem because when we're lost in them, we get so... um, separated from how things actually are. We are imprisoned by the force of the very feeling. Or I keep looking at these extraordinary, extraordinary calligraphies on the wall and thinking, you know, what's it like to really appreciate it? And what's it like to think the only way I'll ever be happy is to own one of these? (laughs) Those are different states. Right? So I have a friend um, named Barbara Fredrickson who is a uh, psychologist, a researcher at the University of North Carolina, and she, she uh, researches positive emotions. And um, she, her first book was called Positivity, and she uses loving-kindness meditation often as the intervention to try to bring forth a positive state. So positive emotions, I'm not sure that loving kindness is an emotion, but a positive state. 
um, loving kindness, gratitude, a sense of balance, of, of equanimity, interest, curiosity. So one of the things in her book, which I found uh, very compelling, was she has this theory about positive states that we don't, if we choose to, we don't cultivate them just to be like giddy and oblivious to the pain in the world or things like that. Uh, but she has this twofold theory. One is about broadening our perspective, and the other is about building a sense of inner resource. So broaden and build is her theory. The broaden part comes from really the opposite of what I was just saying. There's certain states that constrict us and make our world incredibly small. And then there are other states which just open us up. And we just feel this sense of expansiveness and connection in a much bigger way. And one of the things I always quote, because I found it like so spooky, is that in doing that research, what they found was that as people cultivated these positive states, not only was that this inner sense of broadening, of opening, but their peripheral vision actually got better. Like, isn't that spooky? Think about that. I'm like, whoa. Um, that's the broaden part. And the build part was that in the cultivation of these positive states, we build a sense of inner resource. Without that, at some point or another, we feel depleted, most likely, overcome, exhausted. Uh, shattered. We can't go on. And so it's not because we're trying to ultimately avoid pain or um, just sit home happily and never do anything about anything. But it's because we need that sense of inner resource to go on, to actually be effective, to sustain an effort. We can make an effort from a lot of different motivations and from a lot of different places, but to sustain an effort well, tends to involve not being motivated just by rage, for example, but to have a sense of um, possibility, resilience, something else happening inside that allows us to give or care or even pay attention to somebody else. You know what it's like? I'm sure you know what it's like, actually. And when we do questions, anyone can tell me if it's not like that for them, but to be like really over, overwhelmed, feel just really overwhelmed and exhausted, and then somebody start telling you their story, and it's like, please don't, you know? <laughs> and even if you listen or look like you're listening, you're not really listening, you know? Because it's just like, I can't take in anything else. And then if you combine that, many of us have this sort of weird conditioning about feeling we are solely responsible for fixing everything. So you have the exhaustion and that secret feeling that makes you kind of like, no, I can't, you know. I mean, you really can't sustain an effort. Nobody can in generosity and caring and service and trying to make this a better world. That's why those states are really important. 
cultivating kind of a positive sense of resilience. And that's what will help balance the prevalence of um, what might be very strong conditioning toward more difficult kinds of states. So that's like the inner enemy. We have the outer enemy, which is a being, you know, or maybe many beings. Um, we have the inner enemy, which is these states. We have what's called a secret enemy. Um, and that's a more fundamental question of worldview. You know, like, how alone do we really think we are? Um, do we experience this as a world of interconnection? Or is it so solitary that it's really governed by, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and you can never, like, let your guard down, and, you know, nobody ever did anything for me. And um, I once, like, kind of semi-ruined this young woman's life by the phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I was teaching... Uh, co-teaching this like six-day program and in the beginning I used that phrase it's a dog eat dog world and I thought what a weird phrase you know like it's a dog eat dog world and so she got this woman got up to the microphone and she said I never knew that was the phrase my whole life I thought it was it's a doggy dog world <laughs> you know like puppies and like meadows and like So I never knew it was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And so six days went by, and then in the end, the last day, she, got, she went back to the microphone and she said, I refuse to live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. She said, I'm going to live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. <laughs> I thought, okay. So the problem with having a sense of complete separation or isolation is that it's actually not true we do live in an interconnected universe. That's how things are. It's not always pleasant reflection, you know, but our lives really are connected. Everyone's life has something to do with mine. Um, we can just sit for a few moments. We can actually do my favorite reflection here together. Um, just think about anybody who was involved in any way in your being here right now. Just see who pops up in your mind. Somebody tell you about this place. Somebody tell you about their meditation practice. Somebody lend you a book, read you a poem. Maybe somebody in this room was in the store and just thought, I'm going to go in there, you know? But mostly not, if anybody, at all. We're all here because of conversations we've had with people and interactions and relationships and influences. So who comes to mind?
sometimes I do this reflection and I think about the Board of Regents, the state of New York, which gave me a scholarship, which is how I was able to go to college, which is how I ended up in India studying meditation. It was through this college program. Because without them, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. And sometimes when I do this reflection, I think about those people whose actions have really hurt me. Not just the ones I find kind of annoying or difficult, but I think about those times in my life I really felt like I was at an edge. Like I have got to change my relationship to what's happening or I won't be free. Because they're part of why I'm here right now too. This moment in time is a confluence of all of that, as is every moment in time. So however alone we might feel, the actual truth is that we live in an interconnected universe. So thank you. Now there are a lot more of us in here, right? So this doesn't mean you like everybody. It doesn't actually even mean you like anybody. But there's this deep knowing our lives have something to do with one another that the strict and rigid sense of self and other and us and them that we tend to live by is a construct. It's manufactured. It's made up that the truth is much more about we than about me and you. And then the most secret enemy after the outer enemy, the inner enemy, and the secret enemy, Bob calls it a kind of self-loathing. I think of it as more like hopelessness. Um, it's the sense of I don't have the capacity to be different. That nothing can really change. And this is, um, you know, it's a very strong conditioning. It tends to be very strong cultural conditioning in, in many ways for a lot of people. Um, and it's in big contrast to what I felt like I discovered in exploring, say, Buddhist teaching or um, Eastern teaching about just the nature of the mind. You know, like, what will you find if you look really deep inside? Is it sort of like a pit, you know, of unpleasantness and despair? Or is there a capacity? It may be a quite unawakened capacity. It might be buried under a tremendous amount of conditioning, but is there the possibility of real change, of connection, of love, of caring for yourself and for others? And so, of course, that teaching would say absolutely. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you've been through, what you may yet go through, that capacity, that possibility is never, ever destroyed. And so we do various practices like meditation to awaken it, to rest there, and to nurture it, to, to bring it forth so that it comes alive. Um, one of my favorite quotes um, is from this movie, Dan in Real Life, 
uh, which my goddaughter actually was in when she was really a little girl. She didn't have any speaking lines. She barked at one point because um, there was a talent show and she was auditioning in the talent show. And that was actually her audition for the movie was to bark. Uh, and apparently she did it well because she was in the movie. Um, but there's a line in the movie which says something like, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And of course, you know, it's Valentine's Day. We think of it as a feeling, right? And um, we can know it as a feeling. But think about love as an ability, as something we can exercise, as something that we can bring forth. And of course, it takes tremendous understanding. Go, go back to that first kind of enemy, the outer enemy. What does it mean to love your enemy? If you think it means giving in, I mean, why, really? We don't need to cultivate that. You know, we can do that anyway. And if you think it means losing sight of what you consider to be right, to be correct, you know, that's not worth... We don't need to go down that road either. You know, what if it means being able to take very strong action but not quite from the place we're used to taking strong action from, with a sense of uh, hatred, perhaps, or fear. Um, what if we were taking really strong action from a whole other place? Like, may all the bad people find the love in their hearts. That's the, the possibility that is is being offered. And of course, it, it depends on our own experience. It's not just to believe it, but to experiment. Like, what's it like? What's it like with myself when I see those same issues and I regard them and myself with compassion instead of with scorn? What's it like? What's it like when I see someone else's behavior and determine to try to protect myself or protect someone else, but don't quite cast them into that um, place where they are so far the other that uh, I'm just caught in the, in the same old dynamic. Like, what's it like? Is it possible? And um, that's kind of the experiment we make. And so in some ways, the most secret enemy, that sense of, like, nothing to be done, you know, I'm just who I am, um, is the most insidious. Because if we have any kind of glimmer of a, a sense of possibility, then we just do the work. And we see. Um, and I certainly feel like what I've seen just in, in these years that I've been practicing is is a whole world of strength that I never would have imagined was really strength, just from my concepts, you know, and my, my conditioning. And I've seen that um, for all we might think of something like uh, kindness or compassion as sort of a secondary virtue, you know, like if you can't be courageous and you can't be brilliant and you can't be wonderful, it's like, okay, be kind, it's nice. You know, it's not great, um, but it's good, you know, it's good. And But really, if you think about a time when somebody was kind 
toward you, you know, we don't tend to think of those people with, like, oh, that was a pathetic person. You know, there's a lot of gratitude there. They saw something in me I couldn't even see in myself at that time. Or, or because of them, I found the energy to um, make a kind of change, something like that. And so I just see it as a, a time, especially now, where we can uh, do tremendous exploration and find ways that perhaps are very, very different and I think in the end actually will prove hopefully to be much more effective in, in creating change. So I'm going to stop here and hope to hear from you um, in whatever's on your mind. We have a few minutes and then we're going to go back to Lily and the band. <laughs> Can I call myself part of the band? So does anybody have a question for Sharon? Yeah. Yeah, hi. Uh, sorry. Um, I was just reading uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's new book today, and he was talking about during the Vietnam War uh, when he developed his whole concept of engaged Buddhism and um, how connecting mindfulness to activism. So it'd be really good for you to talk about at this moment in time uh, both nationally and internationally, when we're seeing this sort of darkness seep back in, about yeah. firstly why you see this this energy coming back in at this point when we're facing so many challenges in the world, economic, social, environmental, and what is the role of activism, of mindfulness into action? Uh, well, I don't think I know yet, but <laughs> or I don't think I have the answer, but I'm I'm sure there is a role. And um, one of the things Thich Nhat Hanh said, he came to visit uh, the Insight Meditation Society many years ago, and before he got kind of so famous. Um, it was really fun and interesting. I remember we, we gave him a tour, of course, and we went to the garden, and he said something like, oh, our garden's very messy, too. And I went, okay. <laughs> I guess our garden's really messy. Um, but somebody, you know, we, we were hang out with him and somebody asked him a question they said something like when the Vietnam War happened to the Vietnamese people and he said the, v the Vietnam War did not just happen to the Vietnamese people it happened to everybody you know that there were ripple effects um, really globally and I think that's the vision that we have the possibility of having it's not just other people who are being affected by certain actions it's everybody and I look back, um, you know, like the civil rights movement in this country, I was a little young to be marching and stuff, maybe. Um, but um, there were a few things. One is that I consider it a deeply spiritual movement. You know, like if you look at those people um, registering people to vote uh, in the South where they couldn't and you know, getting beaten and um, attacked, and you watch them just get down on the ground and pray before they went out there. Um, you know, it was the black church, it was synagogues, it was a lot of um, religious institutions that were uh, helping people do that kind of work. And I don't know exactly what it's going to be now. I think 
there needs to be that spiritual energy. We need to connect to something bigger, each of us. Because um, none of this is easy, you know, it's not a straight shot. The other part about the civil rights movement, which just struck me one day, uh, and I thought, wow, you know, I had previously thought, as many of us do, like without the, how should I say this? It was like I had been thinking with the constraints of history so that I would think, wow, how amazing people had the courage and the strength to do what they did, almost like they knew it was going to work. And then I realized they did it without knowing if it was going to work. They just did it. You know, we look back and think, yeah, it worked. Wow, you know. But imagine what it takes when you don't know, because we actually never really do know. Um, and so I, I really believe that in at least in some parts of whatever develops now, um, there are so many people who are practicing mindfulness or, or different kinds of practices. Uh, they may or may not have an affiliation with a kind of structured religious institution. Um, but there's a lot of kind of soul force there, you know. And my hope is that it will really... Uh, translate into that. So looking at my friend over there, I was teaching somewhere else the other night, and I mentioned how uh, before the election, and really for many years, I've been really on the bandwagon urging people to vote, you know, because I believe that's a real expression of our um, innate dignity. Like, everybody has a voice. Everybody should exercise that voice everybody's view is worth something. And, uh, you know, I don't go around telling people who to vote for, but I think everybody really needs to vote. And I was doing a program in D.C. with um, Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio, and it's supposed to be about mindfulness, and I just kept telling people, you need to vote. And Tim turned to me and said, are you running for office or something? <laughs> and I said, no, you are, actually. Um, and it was not a very popular position, like what I was saying the other night was that uh, I had written different things in different places, and I read the comments one day, which is usually a mistake, and, uh, you know, I think so much less of you than I did before. Why are you asking people to participate in an evil system, or the next comment was like a violent system, and um, and I realized it's not going to be universally popular, although it helped him, which made me very happy. <laughs> um, and so uh, it's finding that place where, which you feel is consonant with your deepest values, I think, and, and really working toward that. As, as time is going to demand it, you know, of each of us, and vote, whatever you do. Another question? Hi, how are you? I'm Christina. Thank you so much for that. I'm wondering if you think that it's possible or appropriate to classify a sense of like anger as righteous, specifically maybe in the context of a response to oppression, whether individual or systemic, mm -hmm. and if that can be 
compatible or productive even with the endeavor of you know opening one's heart <laughs> and consciousness? Um, I think it can be compatible. I think a very big question, and I learned this from my uh, real activist friends, a real question is, does it become a chronic state? And can you dial it down ever? You know, like I have friends who are amazing activists and who were awakened to various truths about how people were living um, through witnessing it and and feeling that kind of righteous anger. And one in particular, she says, when we were on a panel together somewhere and she was saying, I don't know how to dial it down, you know? And she said, neither is anybody I work with. She said, now we turn it on each other, you know? And there's no respite. It's like there's no place of recovery, you know, and kind of gathering energy again. And, and you know, if you think about when we're inspired, the kind of effort we put into something, and when we're just outraged, the kind of effort we put into something. So I think many, many people, you know, um, we, we tend to need that kind of awakening, you know, and, and that energy. But um, I've had, and I've also had many activist friends tell me they can't enjoy anything. They can't let themselves enjoy anything because they feel too guilty, you know, it's like turning away from the tremendous suffering, and um, which seems like a recipe for burnout. I mean, they were pretty burnt out, actually. You know, like, um, there needs to be a different sense of balance, and I didn't like that word balance for a very long time. I thought it was very dull and kind of um, mediocre, you know, like, who, who really wants to devote themselves to getting to be more balanced. It's like nothing. Um, I, was, I was thinking nebishy for those of you who speak Yiddish. You know, it's like, it's like nothing. It's like bland, you know. Um, and uh, I was actually involved uh, at this place, the Garrison Institute um, in Garrison, New York. We did a four-year program bringing tools of uh, meditation and yoga to domestic violence shelter workers. And um, there were two, actually two stories out of that. Uh, one was that we started with frontline workers and uh, the directors and supervisors of the shelters got really moved by what they were seeing. So they wanted a program. So we did like a parallel track for them. And, um, and so they themselves came up with this term about the workplace uh, that they were trying to bring about, which was a culture of wellness. And a culture can be the entire workplace. It could be your desk. It could be your body and mind. So um, and they all had different ideas about how to help create this culture of wellness. And uh, this one woman said, who was a director of a shelter, she said, I've decided that I'm going to try to take a lunch break and everyone in the room who did not work at a shelter was completely aghast. And we said, you don't take a lunch break? Like, is it in your contract? And she said, oh, yeah, it's in my contract, but never enough time. Everything is urgent. It's all terrible. People need me always. But she said, now, I see, I can't go on, actually, unless I kind of do that. 
So because we were meeting um, in the city in between retreats, we got to hear her progress. So first time she came in, she said it didn't work. So I closed the door, but somebody crouched down and looked through the keyhole. And so I was in there, so I didn't get a break. But maybe like three weeks later, it worked. She said, she said it worked because I closed the door and turned off the lights and I got a break. And I thought of that whole trajectory. Probably the hardest part was realizing that she needed it and that she was going to go for it. So it was one story. The other story, um, which I started out thinking about telling, was that at some point the, the Garrison Institute decided to shift the program to uh, one of working with international humanitarian aid workers. And so everything had to be rewritten, like all the pamphlets and the brochures and the materials. So uh, they hired this marketing firm, and I was in this marketing meeting, and I said something like, you know, the state we're trying to help people achieve, I know it's not a good word. I know it's boring. I know it's really, like, unappealing, but the state is one of balance. And everyone from the marketing team started laughing at me, and they said, you know who really likes the word balance? Anyone who feels like they're out of balance. They said, that's a lot of people. Um, that's a good word. You know, we tend to think of balance as something that will make us go back to sleep, but I don't think of it that way in truth, you know. Um, I think it's like resilience. It's, it's having the capacity to find one's way without burning out so much. Maybe one last quick mm -hmm. question. Anyone? Well, maybe not. Oh, there's one. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Sharon. And, mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Lily, also. Um, addressing this gentleman's point again, can meditation lead to, you know, uh, activism? So I, I, I've been wondering for a few years, you know, if through meditation can we arrive at a natural kind of social engagement through the experience of compassion? You know, is there a natural development? Then that maybe leads to engagement and, and activism with um, a different sensibility than mm -hmm, anger. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe. Uh -huh. I, I, I think medit meditation will lead to compassion. I think that's absolutely true. People's expression, you know, um, is also very personal. Like, what if you're an artist? Does that count? You know? As social engagement, I think it should. Um, I think that uh, there are other things um, that help forge one's sense of social engagement, like community, for example. Because I, I definitely think the meditation will lead to the compassion, and compassion. Um, could well have more creative outlets with understanding. So, for example, um, I have no doubt that uh, as you practice, and I've seen this thousands of times, um, if you're approached by someone on the street asking for money, 
you may or may not give them the money, but there's a recognition this is a human being. Um, and there is that that grows. Whether you then go on to consider what's the housing policy of this city, you know, and uh, what's the percentage of people who are living on the street, and when did this happen, you know, that's another thing. Uh, and not everybody will, I think, make that other leap, and that's why I think of things like community and understanding and information and other things will, for those people who are going to express their compassion in that way, yeah. So I guess perhaps it's the, um, the experience of recognizing interconnectivity, yeah. actual connection, that, yeah. that you, know, you jump past me and it's about us. Yeah. And actual kind of tactile experience of interconnectivity. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean by saying that meditation will lead to compassion. But since your question was actually about social engagement, which I think is different um, than just the experience of compassion, um, I think people, first of all, will express compassion in a thousand different ways, very genuinely so. Uh, I'm counting on the artists of our time to lead me on and keep me inspired. Um, and for those people for whom their compassion will be expressed in that kind of classical sense of social engagement, you know. Um, I think we all need help in uh, taking that feeling of compassion and translating it into what would a bigger structural change look like or what are the deeper questions to ask um, about how things have come to be the way that they are. And everybody needs to vote no matter what. So thank you.